Chapter 23 Last 12 Months As I reached what would be my last 12 months of service, it's worth just spending a moment describing what this felt like. As you'll now appreciate, a 30-year police career is full of ups and downs, laughter, sadness, fear and excitement. It also takes its toll on your family and your physical and mental health. As I approached the end of my career, I had very mixed emotions. I felt a huge sense of relief flooding over me, that I would no longer have to deal with things that I knew could go badly wrong through no fault of mine, but which could put me and others in criminal or civil courts for many years. I've also been a bit of a worrier, and I've seen so many outstanding officers caught up in messy issues and then treated in a way that they didn't deserve. Often, they were just in the wrong place at the wrong time, or maybe made a decision in good faith that ended up going horribly wrong. They became victims of an unforgiving blame culture that had infected UK public services. Over a number of years, I'd periodically struggled with quite serious anxiety. It's hard to know how much of this was about what I did and saw in the police and how much of it was just me being me. In reality, it was probably a bit of both. I think that on balance, the things that made me feel particularly anxious were caused by the worry and fear that modern policing generates. Fear of blame, Worrying about complaints. I'd never taken any time out because of my anxiety. I'd just gone to see the doctor, got sorted out with medication, got on with it and put on a brave face. I never told anyone about this at work. It's only now that I feel more comfortable admitting it. It was something that I'd always felt a bit ashamed of. But now that I'm no longer in the police, I feel it's important to be more honest. Thankfully, the stigma that goes with struggling with mental health is a lot less of an issue today than it used to be. I know a lot of police officers who have struggled with their mental health, so I'm in good company. That's what people don't understand about the police. It's generally not the things that you have to deal with that stress you out. It's trying to deal with an atmosphere where you know that if something goes wrong, you'll be hung out to dry by the media, by the courts, and by chief officers who will cave into political pressure and won't have your back. As well as feeling relieved and excited about leaving the force, I was starting to feel quite uncertain about the future. I was planning to start my own business as an advisor to technology companies working with law enforcement, but I had some self-doubt about whether I'd be able to make that transition to life in the private sector. Would I be able to run my own business and manage all the financial, contractual and administrative things that I'd never had to do before? Deep down, I think I knew that I'd be fine, that I'd figure it all out. But even so, the gremlin of self-doubt was pretty persistent. In the end, I had very little time to think about it because my new position was going to be very intense 
and I certainly wasn't going to have the chance to put my feet up for my final 12 months. The West Midlands Police was, and still is, leading the country in terms of its use of new technology, and in particular, its approach to data analytics. This is all about using the most modern data science methods to make sense of the vast quantities of data that all large organisations gather on a day-to-day -day basis. Historically, this data just sat there, stored on some server somewhere, doing nothing. People might have dipped into it on a case-by-case -case basis to find something out or to make a query to answer a single question. But data scientists bring all of that data that's been gathered over many years into one place. They use it to extract a new and better understanding of a particular problem. They will find lots of statistical correlations between different data sets. And they test different theories about what can be inferred. Ultimately, this means that by using data, we can now answer questions that would have been impossible to resolve only a few years ago. In a police context, some of this was about allowing our staff to search every dataset from a single query and thus save a lot of time. For example, pulling out everything we knew as an organisation about a person, a vehicle, an address or a phone number. This was incredibly helpful for intelligence officers and investigators, particularly in the early stages of an investigation when it was unclear what had happened and there was a lot of intelligence gaps that needed filling quickly. Before having this capability, the police would have had to query 10 or 12 different systems, and each would provide part of the answer. It was slow, inefficient, time-consuming, and very inconsistent in terms of the results. However, we had an aspiration to start using this data to build an artificial intelligence capability nationally that will be used to quickly answer all sorts of problems that policing routinely grapples with. The terms AI or machine learning are much bandied about and provoke all sorts of fevered speculation about evil robots or some master computer that will become so intelligent and malign that it will learn to murder us all as we sleep. The reality, of course, is a lot more mundane. Machine learning is just a new way of understanding the vast quantities of data that our society gathers routinely by automating and accelerating tasks that many human analysts would have worked on previously. These new systems will churn through many terabytes of data and produce answers in seconds rather than days or weeks of human effort. Data scientists will often set out to answer a particular problem that an organisation is interested in answering, in an attempt to make that organisation more efficient or improve customer satisfaction. The private sector has been doing these techniques for years, but it was all new to policing. The West Midlands Police made a successful bid for funding to the Home Office to build a proof-of-concept artificial intelligence capability by using data from multiple partner forces to answer a number of questions. 
These questions are referred to as use cases, and the primary use case was the following. Can we predict those individuals who are most likely to commit their first offence of serious violence using a gun or a knife within a short window of time? The UK was in the midst of an epidemic of knife crime and gun crime, and both Birmingham and London were suffering particularly badly. The loss of dozens of young lives was catastrophic, and those in deprived parts of the inner city were suffering the most. There was an urgent need to try to find innovative solutions. We felt that if we could quickly identify those most at risk as both perpetrators and potential victims, we'd be able to save lives by diverting those young men away from this lifestyle, by getting other agencies involved. It wasn't about locking them up before they'd done anything. It was about offering them an enhanced level of help and support. My project was called the National Data Analytics Solution. And we were working with a bunch of very clever data scientists from Accenture. I'd previously been a bit sceptical about Accenture's involvement with the West Midlands Police. And I tended to regard them as being in the same category as other management consultants that we had dealt with over the years. These companies tended to parachute in a load of kids who were barely out of university. They would then spend weeks creating fancy PowerPoint presentations that either stated the bleeding obvious or completely confused everyone. Finally, they would produce an invoice for an eye-watering amount of money before buggering off, leaving a trail of destruction behind them. This team, however, were a super bright, great bunch. I enjoyed working with them. I was able to teach them a lot about policing in exchange for them teaching me a lot about data analytics. It was a real eye-opener, watching them gradually building a capability that we then began to test against over 500 million lines of data going back over 25 years to start extracting some fascinating insights. I also had the great pleasure of working directly with Deputy Chief Constable Louisa Rolfe, who shortly afterwards was promoted to Assistant Commissioner in the Met. She was a fantastic boss and a lovely person to work for. The project was dogged with headaches that unsurprisingly highlighted many of the things that are currently wrong with policing. First of all, the Home Office took an age to decide whether the project was going to be funded, delaying everything for months. Once they'd allocated the funding, they then insisted that the project needed to be completed by the end of the financial year, which meant that we only had eight months left to complete a massively complex 12-month project. The Home Office was insistent that no funding could be carried over to the following year. This is typical of the inflexible culture in the civil service. The Home Office was allocating £4.5 million of taxpayers' money to this project, but they seemed unable to grasp that giving us only eight months to do it because of their own glacially slow bureaucracy risked dooming it to failure. Having finally secured the funding, we got to work, only to find that most of the police forces that signed up to partner on the project 
refused to give us any data. So, to be clear, this was a publicly funded project to tackle gun and knife crime, the two biggest risks to the public in a generation. And there were police forces refusing to give another police force their data, even though their own chief constables had agreed to join the project. It was unbelievable. One of our partners was the Met, a force that was experiencing a knife crime epidemic, and yet it too refused, point blank, to give us data. So, why was this? It was the institutional fear of making a mistake and being held responsible that was to blame, something that has been a recurring theme in this book. The forces were terrified of getting fined for a data breach by the Information Commissioner's Office, the public body that had been set up to enforce data protection legislation, including the new European General Data Protection Regulation legislation that had become law in the UK in 2018. They also refused to provide data to us because we were going to be storing it in a cloud computing environment, which was something that every corporation and financial institution in the UK had been doing for many years. This proved to be just too much for those forces that had IT policies that were still stuck in the dark ages. Another reason that I suspect the partner forces refused to provide their data was that the other curse of UK policing, the 45 force structure in which every force is doing things differently. A kind of sibling rivalry between forces was often a major barrier to cooperation. And there was a mentality that if we're not in charge of the game, then we're not playing with you at all. I'd seen this time and time again in my career, when perverse or selfish decisions were made rather than doing what was best for the public. At one point, we had six or seven data protection officers from different forces in the room, and they all had a different understanding of what the law allowed them to do. It was very frustrating, and I wanted to go around the room banging heads together and shout, this is people's bloody lives we're talking about here, you bloody idiots. But I bit my lip and took a deep breath instead. The next big frustration was the way that the project was misrepresented by the media. Certain outlets were very critical about it and argued that the police would simply use that technology to target and discriminate against certain ethnic groups. Nonetheless, the same journalists were simultaneously wringing their hands about the number of young men killing each other with knives on the streets of our cities. Other publications preferred a different sort of misleading sensationalism and portrayed the project as akin to evil police robots wanting to arrest everyone before they've even committed a crime. To be fair, there have been some examples of police using technology in a way that had an adverse impact on human rights. A notable example of this happened in 2010, when the Counterterrorism Network installed a series of CCTV cameras in predominantly Muslim communities in Birmingham, 
to tackle Islamist extremism. So I can understand that technology has to be used in an appropriate and sensitive way by the authorities. However, law enforcement needs to have the space and the confidence to innovate, and some media commentators have a tendency to see every technical innovation as an attack on human rights, rather than an honest effort to protect the wider public from serious harm. The year absolutely flew by as I find myself travelling all over the UK and was up and down to London for meetings, press interviews and speaking at all sorts of events. Eventually, my final week in policing arrived. I was taken out for a very boozy evening by the Accenture team to say goodbye. However, I realised that trying to keep up the drinking pace with a bunch of 25-year-olds probably wasn't going to end well, so I made sure that I caught the last train home. The project had maintained a fairly hectic pace right up to my final day. I was frantically trying to finish off some reports to the Home Office, even in the very last minutes on my last day at work. Then just before 5pm, on Friday the 29th of March 2019, I logged off my computer for the very last time and sat very quietly for a few moments' reflection. I got up, walked past the reception staff on the ground floor of headquarters, said goodbye to them and walked out the door to my wife, who was waiting to take me for dinner. After 30 years in the police, I was done.